Revelation 8, 6 through 9, 21. Then the seven angels, who had the seven trumpets, prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down on the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain, all ablaze, was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth and any, or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not allowed to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. During those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair, and their teeth was like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails with stings like scorpions, and in their tails they had power to torment people for five months. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek is Apollyon, that is, destroyer. The first woe is past, the other two woes are yet to come. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. 
Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of the mouths of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads with which they inflict injury. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thank you for the book of Revelation and for what it reveals to us about your plan for the world and your plan for uh, history under Christ's rule. Please help us to understand it this morning and to apply it to our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the difficulties of sermon illustrations is that inevitably some people get them and others don't in whatever congregation, especially in a congregation like this, where most of us, we don't share a common cultural background. We're from different places and uh, of different ages. And so often a few people nod with recognition and others look on politely thinking, I have no idea what he's talking about. So let me give you three illustrations to begin with. Those of you who watch K-dramas, anyone watch K-dramas? couple, okay, okay uh, Korean dramas, Korean reality shows. Uh, if my experience tells me that 95% are women watching K-dramas, although Christian raised his hand, and, uh, you know, maybe 5% of men, but you're familiar with the idea of recapitulation because it's that thing in a, a K-drama when they keep looping back to a silly uh, look that somebody gives or a silly... Uh, word that they say, and, and the edits keep coming back to it. And so maybe you've seen Physical 100, and in, in that, it, they're doing all sorts of physical feats, and first you uh, see the crowd's reaction. They go, ah! and, and it's a close-up of the crowd, and then it zooms out, and you see the, the wider crowd go, and you hear in the distance, ah! And then it zooms out to where the, the competition is happening and you see the person slip off the wall and fall into the water and it, it, far in the distance you hear, ah! and it's the same moment, but shown from different angles. Well, that's recapitulation. Or maybe you don't watch those, you, you watch televised sports. And if my experience is any indicator, that's mostly men and maybe a few women as well. You're, you're familiar with the idea of recapitulation. Because it's whenever the, the person scores the goal in the competition, it's from the sidelines and you see it, and then they quickly cut to a slow motion from behind the net, and, and they show the goal being scored and the person pumping their fists, and then they, they uh, zoom out maybe from an aerial view and you see it again, the person pumps their fist and the, the uh, teammates come and lift them off the ground, and, and that's recapitulation. And those of you who listen to classical music, you're too refined to watch K-dramas. You're too refined to watch televised sports. You know what recapitulation is. It's 
the part of a movement where the key themes are repeated from the exposition. And delightfully, if you aren't familiar with any of those, well, now you're familiar with recapitulation because I've done it three times. We've, we've come back to the same idea, the same uh, theme over and over again. And it's important to understand the idea of recapitulation because otherwise our interpretation of the book of Revelation from chapter 8 onwards is going to go way off track going to become very strange. There are Christians who have basically approached the book of Revelation as a chronological book with chronological visions. And based on their reading of the book, they end up expecting multiple returns of Jesus. So first Jesus comes in secret. He raptures away Christians off the earth so that he can subject non-believers to trials. And then he returns again for a thousand years to reign on earth, but there are still somehow non-believers around, and, and, and they end up waging a war with Satan at the end of a thousand years. And then after that final battle, Christ returns in judgment, the final judgment, to uh, condemn the devil and all who rebelled with him. And so you see, it starts to get quite complicated because Jesus comes, but that's not the end. And then, and then he comes to rule, but that's not the end. And then he comes to judge and wrap everything up. This is the kind of reading of Revelation. It was dominant in America over the last century, particularly the 20th century. Happily, it is changing. Uh, this, this way of reading is, is going out of fashion. And although they'd point to a lot of, uh, maybe a, a few other places in Scripture to make their case, much of that misunderstanding comes from reading Revelation as a chronological book rather than a book full of recapitulation. It speaks of the same events and patterns from different angles. So you have the seven seals, you have the seven trumpets, you have the seven signs and the seven bowls. And you'll notice that there are parallels uh, in all of them. Each of the seven give a new aspect, maybe bring a new intensity, but they're still talking about the same um, basic patterns and events. If you were here in previous weeks, it, as we looked at the seven seals, you'll remember that they showed us Christ's plan for the world, for world history, to both judge and redeem. And if there was one group that was in focus for the seven seals, it was the saints, the sealed ones. They were, we said, the, the four horses which were guided by the Spirit, marching out into the world to conquer in the name of Christ. But the way that the church conquered, we saw, is different from the way that any other earthly army conquers. The church conquers by dying by bloodshed of their own blood. We saw that the church grows as Christians lay down their lives for the sake of the gospel. And we said that is literally true in that when there's martyrdom, the church grows historically. But we also said it's figuratively true. When we die to ourselves, that's when we can begin to make an impact for Christ. When we die to ourselves, and live to Christ. 
And we saw that in the end, Christ will bring his people safely through every suffering, even death itself, to a happy and glorious end. And so while we await that day, we pray, knowing he hears our prayers, he will answer them. That was sort of the lesson of the seven seals wrapped up. Now, if the seven seals show us Christ's plan for the world history and focus on Christians, on sealed people, the ones that bear the mark of God, now the seven trumpets show us his same plan for world history, but from the perspective of the unsealed, those who don't bear the mark of God. Here, the, the unsealed are also called the inhabitants of the earth. Because whether, well, well they've made the earthly kingdom their dwelling, their in, inhabitation. They're perfectly happy here. Whether consciously or not, whether actively persecuting the church or not, they live in rebellion against the, the one that sits on the heavenly throne. And the trumpets reveal that that is no small thing. When martyrs pray in chapter 6, How long, O Lord, until you judge and, and avenge our blood? We see that from the saints' perspective, God doesn't seem to be judging. They're, they're longing for justice in history. But here in chapters 8 and 9, we see that from the perspective of the unsealed, the judgment's begun. It's being poured out already on earth's dwellers, the inhabitants of the earth. And it's already causing them to despair. The first four trumpets seem to, to be showing us that God's wrath against the inhabitants of the earth is revealed in natural evil. The first four seals belong together, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And the first four trumpets belong together. In each of them, an angel sounds a trumpet, some sort of plague event that's sort of linked to the plagues on Egypt in Exodus is, is rolled out. And the result is that a third of this or that is destroyed. So we'll think about those aspects. First, the trumpets. Trumpets were used by Israel in both war and worship. In lots of places in the Old Testament, they were connected to many key moments. So Israel heard the deafening sound of a trumpet from Mount Sinai when, when God descended on the mountain to give the law. And it was so loud that they wanted it to stop. Please, Moses, make it stop. The priests blew the trumpets as they marched around Jericho. And you'll remember they blew the trumpets at the end and the walls came tumbling down. When David brought the ark into Jerusalem, trumpets were played by the priests as they celebrated the Lord is coming to be enthroned in his city. And then the Israelites were told to announce the Day of Atonement, the day when, when a sacrifice was made to cover over the sin of the people. They were announcing it ten days beforehand with the Feast of Trumpets. So the, the trumpets blow, and in all these instances, they seem to announce God's presence, whether to judge or to save. And the response of the people who hear the trumpets is either to worship, if they're the, among the saved, or 
to be bewildered and afraid if they're among the condemned. So we should expect that the seven trumpets here are, are meant to bring the same dual response. Worship or fear. The plagues then. So the trumpets bring the plagues and the, these are the judgments that are closely linked to the plagues on Egypt in the book of Exodus. There was hail, there was fire, there was water becoming blood, there was famine and drought and darkness and locusts. Now, if the signs in Revelation and Exodus are closely related, we should expect the purpose of the signs to be closely related. In Exodus, God judged Egypt to deliver Israel. To, to lead them out of slavery. With plague after plague, he's showing he's superior to the Egyptian gods. You know, they worship the, the frog god. They worship the sun god. And God says, no, there's no protection for you from the frog god. I'm the god. And you'll do as I command, or you won't last. So they had nowhere to flee except to him. Yet what was their response, the Egyptian response, with plague after plague? No, we won't let your people go. Uh, this, will, this is just going to pass. The frogs will go, the gnats will go, the, it, it'll pass. And they harden their hearts. Rather than repenting in their suffering, they doubled down on their unbelief. They said, no, we'll worship our gods, and they'll protect us, they'll deliver us. And which that, of course, brought more punishment. In fact, we're told that God hardened their hearts as well. So they hardened their hearts, God hardened their hearts so that his glory could be revealed, so that he could show his power to them even more clearly. And his judgments increased. So we should expect that the trumpet plagues in Revelation, show the same. They expose the stubborn hearts of the inhabitants of the earth. People who would rather suffer and die in their rebellion against Christ rather than turn to him in repentance and live. Yet for those who have ears to hear, the trumpets are a powerful sign. God is in the process of delivering his people. So the trumpets bring the plagues, which result in a third of earthly things being destroyed. A third of the crops destroyed, a third of the fish destroyed, a, a third of the water turning bitter, eventually a third of the people dying. God's judgment against fallen creation is massive and undeniable. But it's not total. Two-thirds continue. God's judgments on earth are just enough to cause the soft-hearted to repent and to cause the hard-hearted to despair, but no more. Have you ever noticed that people that suffer the same tribulations in life can be pushed to those two radically different ends? You know, one will say, my cancer and, and the, the fight against it, whether it was winning or losing, battle it pushed me to god it made me see i i need him and then another person with the same sort of cancer the same sort of struggle says 
My cancer made me laugh at the idea of a loving God. How could anyone believe that? And God releases just enough judgment on the earth to reveal the hearts of humanity. So what do these first four trumpets in particular reveal? Well, they show us that God's judgment against a rebellious creation is already, obviously, being shown in the natural world. If anybody has eyes to see, they can see it. Every aspect of the earthly kingdom that seems so stable can be shaken in a moment by God. We don't have time to go into the intricacies of the symbolism here, but the hail, the fire, the blood of the first trumpet, that likely points to a destruction of crops and, and famines. That's what happens when hail comes. The, the fiery mountain thrown into the sea, that likely refers to political upheaval, the, the fall of a nation or an empire, which results in economic destruction, the, a third of the ships wiped out. The third and fourth trumpet, they speak of the bitterness of suffering, the, the, the spiritual darkness of the inhabitants of the earth. And Revelation says that God is unleashing all of these things. All these natural evils are from him. And he does it in order to deprive earth dwellers of any security so that they'll turn to him. When the floods came a, a few weeks back, that was evidence of God's judgment on the earth. We can say that. We don't know particularly what uh, that should lead us to repent of, but we know that when a, a natural disaster like that comes, it, it means, it points the world to the fact we need to repent. There's no security. When the wildfires rage in other parts of the world, judgment. When there's political turmoil and upheaval and wars break out as they have in in Gaza this week judgment it's all part of the curse that that God put on the earth in Genesis 3 everyone on earth is affected a third of the earth is wiped out by it this is judgment but it's not the end it's not the final judgment only a third is destroyed. Two-thirds remain. It's just enough so that those who want to live in denial of the living God, they, they can. The unsealed can harden their hearts. They can double down on their unbelief, on their commitment to the earthly kingdom and say, yeah, I see what's happened to those people, but not me. I'm going to be okay. I'm going to get through the judgment. Surely I'm going to find security apart from God. But that's what the Egyptians said between plague one and two. It's what they said between three and four and, and five and six and all the other plagues. And they said, surely our gods will deliver us. And, and then they said, no, we'll, we'll turn to God. We'll let your people go. We have no other options. You know, they convince themselves, people convince themselves it's all going to blow over. My life is going to be a happy one. I'm going to escape the trials and tribulations that I see others around me fall to. 
but that just shows they're already in spiritual darkness. Trumpet 4 The inhabitants of the earth are willfully blind to the precariousness of their situation. To be separated from the living God is to be teetering on the edge of the abyss. And in Trumpets 5 and 6, we see what comes from the abyss. It's not a place you want to go. It's not a place we want anyone to go. It's far worse than any natural evil, actually. And we see that in chapter 9. God's wrath against the inhabitants of the earth is revealed in natural evil. It's revealed in supernatural evil, spiritual evil as well. The eagle warns us that what's to come is worse. He says, woe, woe, woe. Hebrew, Revelation is written in Greek, but it's from a, a Jewish sort of context, a, a Hebrew mind. And Hebrew doesn't really have superlatives. It doesn't have uh, better, best. And so you might just say good, good, good to say that's the best. Or you don't, don't say God is the holiest. You say he's holy, holy, holy. And you don't just say, whoa. You say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Because the horror is to come. You might remember when the fifth seal was opened, we were given a view into heaven to see the saints securely under the, the altar, praying for justice. Well, now, chapter 9, we're given a mirror image, not into heaven, but into the abyss. And we see the, the fate of the unsealed. We're told that God gives this fallen star a key to the abyss, and he uses it to unleash the locusts with the power of scorpions. But notice verse 4. They weren't told to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree. This is not natural evil. But only these people, those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. The focus of their devastation is unbelieving humanity. Just as Christians are sealed with a, a mark on their forehead to show they belong to God, so later in the book of Revelation we find that those uh, who are not marked with God's mark are marked with another mark to show that they belong not to God but to Satan. There are only two marks available. And we see the fate that God releases on Satan's servants. They were not allowed to kill them but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. During those days, people will seek death, but it will not find it. they will not find it. They'll long to die, but death will elude them. So what's it saying? Keep in mind, this is a symbolic book. It's, it's uh, meant to reveal a spiritual reality that underlies our everyday perspective. And it's saying that God has released dark spiritual forces on the earth. He's let them run rampant on the earth. And they will cause spiritual suffering. They will cause hopeless despair. They will cause, ultimately, the destruction of people. But notice that Satan has no authority on earth except for what God has given him. God gives him the key to unleash these things, and God will take it away. 
and shut him away. Satan can only do what God allows him to do, and God gives him authority to torment those who are unsealed, those who reject Christ. Now see, there is an irony here, because those who belong to Satan are the ones that are tormented by Satan. They don't join his team, and they don't win any victory. They're the ones that are assaulted by him. Satan is not your friend. Satan doesn't want what's best for you. When he tempts you towards sin, when he leads people astray, he promises fun and friendship and frivolity. He delivers destruction. So Satan leads us, and we very often happily follow him to our own torment as humans. There's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is destruction. Why do people go with him? Why? How do they fall victim to him? Well, look at the appearance of these demonic hordes. So on their heads, they wore something like a crown of gold. Not a crown, but something that looks like a crown. Crowns are symbols of authority. It looks as though they have a certain authority about them, a majesty about them. As they urge people toward the abyss, they speak with a commanding tone. You know, they make it seem like this is inevitable. Just go with it. They make it seem like this is the direction of history itself. You're going to be left behind. They make it seem like all right-thinking people would agree something like a crown. They have faces that resemble human faces. There's a certain humanity to them. How very characteristic of the demonic in our time. Maybe you've read about the MAID program in Canada. It's the Medical Assistance in Dying program. That's a euphemism. It's euthanasia. It was first brought into law as a supposedly humane option for those who have terminal illnesses. Why should they have to suffer any longer? Let them die already. But since it was legalized seven years ago, demand has increased year on year. 30,000 last year, I, I believe. And it has been expanded from the terminally ill through to those who are dealing with any kind of physical or mental or sometimes even, if stories are to be believed, financial difficulty. It may soon be expanded uh, if the sort of medical board advocates get their way. It may soon be expanded to mature minors or even disabled infants. If their parents request it. And you know, why not? You know, if euthanasia for adults is given on the grounds of compassion, and you know, if, if abortion is offered as a compassionate option for mothers who have no other option, why should we deny compassion to disabled infants, to minors, to children? And you see, their faces resemble human faces. Their hair is like a woman's hair. 
It's strange, isn't it? Why, why is their hair like a woman's hair? For the same re reason, I guess, that women go to hairdressers. For the same reasons that if you're a man, you're attracted to a woman's hair. I don't know why it is ex exactly, but it's true, right? It's what attracts us. The, the dark spiritual forces use that kind of beguiling, engaging attractiveness to draw people in. They make rebellion against God look, oh, so delightful. And you get people close enough and you draw them in enough and then you can use the lion's teeth. You know, we could probably go on, unpack a, a, a little bit more of these things if we had the time. But, of course, you can over-interpret each detail. Revelation is not trying to give us a secret code to... Uh, decode. Rather, it's trying to show us in these shocking descriptive images what the spiritual facts of the matter are. These sorts of demonic forces are at work in the world, and they wield their authority over all who belong to them. They're powerfully charging around. They're waging spiritual warfare on the unsealed. And most people are in such spiritual darkness, they don't see it all around them. And those that do, well, they're too hard-hearted to turn to the only one that can defend them. And so we see the evidence of spiritual darkness in every culture across the globe. I mean, don't you sometimes see inexplicable evil? Things that you think, how could that, how could anyone have done that, have thought of that. And you know there's a demonic element. You know, the, the nurse who was recently convicted of killing newborns in the UK. Demonic. The, the parents of uh, well, poor parents in Southeast Asian countries, they exploit their children on the internet for money. Demonic. The campaigners working day and night to increase access to the killing of unborn children. Demonic. And of course, the world will say, well, no, it's just a socioeconomic problem. It's, it's just a, a, a matter of um, uh, political issues. It, it's something we can address with our earthly means. It, it's not a sign that our earthly kingdom is shaking. It's not a sign of God's judgment for sure. But those of us who have been sealed say, we recognize this. We know where it comes from. They had a king over them, the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek is Apollyon, that is, destroyer. The destructive presence of supernatural evil in the world is evidence that God's judgment is already being poured out. As unsealed humanity stands up and ever more vehemently demands the right to destroy itself. That's evidence. Revelation teaches us that's judgment. God, in his judgment, gives people over to the wickedness they desire. And he allows them to inhabit it. That's why they're called the inhabitants of the earth. They're inhabiting it. They're dwelling 
Then with the sixth trumpet, he finally gives them what they long for. The locusts were torturers. The angels are killers. And the result of all these divine judgments in history are summarized in, in verses 20 and 21. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons. The idols of gold, of silver, of bronze, of stone, of wood. Idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magical arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. So even after all the trumpets, the ultimate sign of God's judgment is this. He says, you can have everything you want, but you can't have me too. You can have everything, the, the arts, the idolatry, the, the immorality, but you can't have me too. But you know, it doesn't have to be like that for you or for me or for anyone we know. In fact, it's not like that for the sealed. These chapters, with all their horror, is all the experience of the unsealed. It's the spiritual reality for those who are not in Christ. John is telling us here that there are really only two ways to live, and there are really only two ways to die, sealed and unsealed, with Christ or without him. And he wants those who have spiritual vision to flee to Christ when we see the, the earthly kingdom shaken. Flee to Christ. I don't know how bad the typhoon's going to be this afternoon. Probably not too bad. If it's bad, flee to Christ. Because apart from him, there is only despair. I mean, that is the difference between Christians and non-Christians, isn't it? Revelation tells us both are going to suffer. Both are going to die. But the difference is that for a Christian, this world is as close to hell as you're ever going to get. This is it. This is hell. As close as you'll get. For the non-Christian, though, this world is as close to heaven as they'll ever get. This is it. I hope it's good. The abyss assails them. It causes them to despair of life itself. It will only pull them further into torment. But there is an escape for God's wrath. It's to learn the lesson of the Egyptians. It's to learn the lesson of the unsealed in the book of Revelation. When it says they still did not repent and turn from their idolatry, from the works of their hands. Learn the lesson. Turn from the works of your hands. Turn from idolatry. Turn from every other source of security. Turn to God. The Egyptians didn't turn from their frog gods, and the frogs destroyed them. How foolish. Will we turn from our wealth gods, our sex gods, our autonomy gods? Today, if you'll hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Let's pray. Father God, this is a, uh, a difficult section of this book. This is a, a real horror in many ways. 
But we thank you for it, Lord, that you show us the truth of the matter. That you show us what spiritual reality looks like. And, and I pray that if it terrifies us, it will only cause us to flee to you. And I pray that if it gives us compassion for the unsealed in our world, that it will cause us to flee to them and carry the gospel to them, the only source of salvation, the only source of hope. And Lord, we pray that you would extend your kingdom, that you would increase the number of the sealed, that we might be able to to gather in joy around your throne. So please keep us this uh, day and, and this week ahead with Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.